Thanks for joining us on episode 1405 of the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. I'm Ben Gutman. I challenge you to invest in yourself, invest in others, develop your influence, and impact the world by using your time, your talent, and your treasures to live out your calling. Having the ability to communicate our message with simplicity is key. And one way to be inspired to do that is to listen to this, the Inspired Stewardship Podcast with my friend, Scott Mader. Complicated can be used for evil, right? You know, for lack of a better term. It can be used, if you look at these, talk about privacy, you look at like the user agreements in every bit of software and, and hardware that we use on a daily basis, they're thousands and thousands of words long. They're rated at like college or higher level reading. Well, okay, you know, what are you hiding in there? Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. If you truly desire to become the person who God wants you to be, then you must learn to use your time, your talent, and your treasures for your true calling. In the Inspired Stewardship Podcast, you will learn to invest in yourself, invest in others, and develop your influence so that you can impact the world. In today's podcast, I interview Ben Gutman. I asked Ben about his journey to delivering a message, about how to deliver clear messages. I also asked Ben about why communication is vital and why it's so hard. And Ben also shares with you a bit about how his faith journey intersected with his life. I've got a new book coming out called Inspired Living, Assembling the Puzzle of Your Call by Mastering Your Time, Your Talent, and Your Treasures. You can find out more about it and sign up for getting more information over at inspiredstewardship.com, Inspired Living. That's inspiredstewardship.com, Inspired Living. Ben Gutman is a marketing and communication expert and the author of Simply Put, Why Clear Messages Win and How to Design Them. He's an experienced marketing executive and educator on a mission to get leaders to more effectively connect by simplifying their messages. Ben is the former co-founder and managing partner at Digital Natives Group, an award-winning agency that worked with the NFL, I Love New York, Comcast, NBC Universal, Hatchet Book Group, The Nature Conservancy, and other major clients. Currently, Ben teaches digital marketing at Baroque College in New York City and consults with a range of thought leaders, venture-backed startups, and other brands. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's great to be here. Absolutely. I shared your intro, and the way I've started asking people this now is, I think intros and bios are like the Instagram photos of our life, right? We make sure we frame it just the right way so that the dirty laundry is not in the background when we take the picture. So can you talk a little bit more about your journey and why is, simply put, why is this message around communication and messaging, why is this what you're putting out in the world? What brought you to this point? Oh, definitely. So my background is I ran a marketing agency for 10 years. I started that basically out of college in an old professor's basement. And we he had a marketing agency and came up to me after class one day and says, no, you want to start something? We need some help with digital. Maybe we can figure something out. 
So drove, I was in Manhattan at the time and their office was just outside the city. So I did the reverse commute, jumped in my 94 Honda Accord, slapped our logo on the wall. And we were there for the first year of our business. And we started to cut our teeth with the local ice cream shop and the local camera shop and a lot of these kind of small businesses. But then bit by bit, start working at bigger clients, hire some more people, you get a bigger office, you move to another, another location, you get more people, you get more clients. And 10 years later, we're working with the NFL and with Comcast and I Love New York and all these really great brands. And it was a really fun journey. But then we decided to sell it. We decided, to, we woke up and we said one day, doing this for the last 10 years, do I want to do this kind of for the next 10 years was really the question. And there was no gun to our head, right? We had good clients and business was good. It's just, you, you want to start to explore things at, at different points. And that was a good opportunity. So we put we went out to market, found a home for our clients, found a home for our employees. And that was about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago at this point. And it was it was really a great ride. But after selling the business, one thing kind of your mind doesn't stop working on this stuff. Like the clients may no longer be there, the deadlines may no longer be there, but you're still thinking about marketing, you're still thinking about the stuff that you're doing. And the question that you hire a marketing agency to solve, which is, how do I say something that people care about? Why do some messages work when others don't? That kept rattling around. And when I had the freedom and the time to think about it more, I said, okay, I want to start to to get this out there in the form of a book. And I had the opportunity to really look into this stuff in a way that wasn't just the war stories, but I wanted to look into the research. I wanted to look into the history. And I found that the answer is simple. It's like literally the answer is simple. Like why do some messages work and others don't? Is that the messages that are more effective are simple. The ones that are less effective are complicated. But that wasn't enough, right? It, the why behind that was surprisingly deep and the how was surprisingly hard. And so putting those two together, I realized there was something inter- interesting story to tell here. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things I want to dig into there. The, the first one is, so you fell into the marketing, I'm not going to say by accident, but by invitation. It wasn't like you had this deep, it, it sounds, and you tell me if I'm wrong, you you had this childhood dream of <laughs> running a digital <laughs> marketing. Yeah, you, know, you felt like this was the thing that you were put on the earth to do. We talk a lot about calling and passion and trying to find the thing that you're meant to do. And yet, obviously, if you did it for 10 years and you had clients like the NFL and I Love New York and great clients like that, you did something well. It's not like you were terrible at your job and got the NFL as a client. That's not going to happen. So wh- how do you see that kind of intersection between... Was it, did it turn out to be your passion after you got into it? You know, how did that part happen? I, I am a little bit weird. We're actually, so in high school, my favorite class that I took was a sports marketing class. A little bit. So I, <laughs> I, I was president of the, there's a club called DECA, which, which mm-hmm. some folks may know it's depending on where you are, you, it's a big deal or you've never heard of it. And so we had, that was the biggest club in our high school. It was like the business club, the marketing club. I ended up being the president of that when I was in high school. But part of that was really the social aspect of it, to be honest, too. It was like, that's what all my friends were doing. And I did it. 
I, I just found that marketing was interesting at, at that age because it was applied in a way that a lot of other stuff was. And I still, I like lots of theory stuff, but it, it was an interesting way to, it's probably the place where kind of marketing and or like business and the humanities, like most closely intersect is in the marketing space. Uh, and now I teach marketing, by the way, at, at Baruch College, where I went to school. And I always try to emphasize how it's really about connecting psychology and culture and mm -hmm. business in the same Venn diagram. How do you put all those things together? That's ultimately what good marketing ends up being. Uh, so I, I did have a little bit of that, but I, it's more the like, in many ways, like marketing is like what I was good at. I enjoyed running like the business. I enjoyed the working with these great clients. I enjoyed their problems that I solved. But I enjoyed, but I, as through that, I enjoyed the act of doing it. I enjoyed the act of marketing and I enjoyed really learning about what that intersection was. And so that led me to majoring in marketing, led me to running a marketing agency, to teaching about it, to, to writing a book about it. And I think it's one of those skills that is broadly applicable to anybody who has to do anything. If you have, if you're, if you want to inform or persuade, which is probably about 90% of people in terms of what the, the work that they do in some way, uh, you're a marketer, right? And so how do you get better at doing that? And, and that's what I'm curious about. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, there's some things there I, I definitely want to dig into as well, but you mentioned earlier that this idea of it, simple messages are the ones that stick. And you just talked a little bit about wanting to persuade people. We want to influence people. We have that marketing is one of those things that I, it, it's one of those with great power comes great responsibility, oh, yeah. right? It's because really good marketers and think about politics, think about other things. It, it, it's this interesting, weird thing of it can be used for good. It can be used for ill kind of thing. It's not, it's not mm -hmm. that marketing is bad, but it can be used to convince people. I think sometimes we're attracted to simple messages and by watering something down to a simple message, we also lose nuance and detail and mm -hmm. reality sometimes. How do you see that responsibility of marketers between influence versus manipulation or that kind of, of dichotomy? Oh yeah, Scott, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's one of those things. I mentioned I teach marketing and I've been doing that now for almost about 10 years. That is, by the way, my absolute favorite thing. It's so great <laughs> to be in the classroom. I love it. Uh, I added to my curriculum, not terribly long ago, probably about three or four years ago, I added a, an ethics section to it because I this was at the moment where a lot of as this digital marketing course, a lot of these like data privacy things were really coming to a head. You talked about like the Cambridge Analytica stuff. You talked about Facebook coming in front of Congress many times now, TikTok stuff in China. So I, I felt like it was very important to to add more emphasis to that as part of the curriculum. And I, I came, I, I come down on the same side that you do, which is that it the tool is neutral, right? The 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 tool of telling a good story and of connecting producers and consumers, which is like the fundamental definition of marketing is connecting somebody who has something or makes something and somebody who wants something or needs something. It's That's what marketing is. There's no kind of value judgment in that. But if you look at the most kind of favorable or unfavorably viewed industries in America, marketing and advertising, like 
pretty low down. It's not the worst. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not the worst. I think we're like last time I saw it was like sandwiched between like airlines and like lawyers. So like it, <laughs> it was it's not not necessarily know, in the best company. of company. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it, it we got a hole to dig out of. And I think that's because there's not enough people who are uh, interested in kind of the social good aspect for it. Uh, I think that it, it, you're 100% right. Like, it is the tool set that is used by by propagandists. It's the tool set used by con artists. But I, I have always been more drawn to the the folks that have used that as more of kind of the cautionary tale rather than that's the goal of marketing. So mm-hmm. there's a a book I read years ago, it's a famous marketing book called Influence by Robert Cialdini. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite books, one of the things that kind of really pushed me further in the in this universe, and also something I tried to base my book off of, because it has a lot of science in it. And it's mm-hmm. but what's what is interesting about that book, it's completely framed by Dr. Cialdini as being about how to defend against these tactics of influence, not about here's how to manipulate people. But a lot of people took it the but other it's way. Been used the other way. Yeah. Exactly. As presented. And then my, a friend of mine, he, he wrote a similar book called The Hype Hand Book, Michael F. Shine. And great book, great guy. And it's and he also has the same attitude where you, you we can look at the people who've used marketing for wrong and use that as how do we when we see, okay, that's the bad example, how do we build practices, eth codes of ethics, just our own attitudes in a way that helps us prevent that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're right. It is like a great power, great responsibility type of thing. And that's my hope with the work that I did too, is that's something that it's about how do people make a positive change less so than selling more kind of like murder widgets or whatever they're doing. Right, right. Or just convincing people. Folks that have listened to the show for a while, I talk about influence as that's one of the things I talk about influencing others, influencing yourself. And, but I contrast that with manipulation and, and to me, the Mm -hmm. difference, and and there's different words you could use for this, but to me, the difference is manipulation is when I'm convincing you to do something because it's good for me and influence Mm -hmm. is when I'm convincing you to do something either because it's good for you or it's good for both of us. It's okay to be a win too. But and that to me, ethical marketing is that more influence. It's like, yeah, I may get a win out of this, but so do you. <laughs> I'm oh, yeah. not selling you a lemon. I'm used car salesman mentality, right? I'm not selling you a piece of junk that's going to fall apart the day you walk out of here. I'm actually giving you something that's valuable and serves you well and whatever. It's okay that you give me value in exchange, but it's it's not about take the money and run sort yeah. of <laughs> and, mindset. And that's so in the book, I talk about simple versus complicated, right? And they're absolutely not quite opposite. It's simple and complex are opposites. Complicated is artificially created complexity, right? It's you complicate as a verb, right? It's something that could be simple, but you chose for some reason, either by lack of effort or by intention to make it complicated. It's make figuring it out how, how to actually appeal yeah. your property tax rating and going through the bureaucracy. That's complicated. <laughs> yeah. And so, so complicated can be used for evil, right? For lack of a better term, it could be used. If you look at these, talk about privacy, you look at like the user agreements 
in every bit of software and, and hardware that we use on a daily basis, they're thousands and thousands of words long. They're rated at like college or higher level reading. Okay, what are you hiding in there? And that's what they're built for. They're built so that you don't immediately are slapped. You're not slapped in the face by saying, hey, we can use all this data and all your images and all your whatever. Um, it, it's meant to be, let's bury that on like page 18 of this thing. Uh, so so that I think is is one of the things that I, I purposely want to try to bring us away from. Mm -hmm. That artificial part of it. So mm -hmm. I, I think too, as we were talking about ethics and, and influence and manipulation in these things, talk a little bit about your faith journey and how that has influenced and intersected where you ended up in life. Oh, certainly. So I'm Jewish and I, I'm not super religious, but I am certainly informed by my personal history, my family history, the, the general philosophy behind it. And the one that always sticks in my mind when I think about that uh, is this idea of tikkun olam. I don't know if you've heard this before, but tikkun olam is, is basically heal the world, right? The world is broken. Your responsibility is to go fix it. Uh, and that is a mindset that I try to bring to everything, right? If, if it's to work, if it's to personal stuff, if it's to like cleaning the house, right? If you pull the science part into this and say entropy increases in, in, in a system, right? Like that's like, was it the second law of thermodynamics? Second law of thermodynamics, uh, yeah. So everything. Sorry, I, was a, I was a physics teacher. I know that one. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, everything gets, gets chaotic. Everything breaks down. Everything gets messy. But it's our job, if you look at the Takuna Lam perspective, to put things back together, right? And that, that could be cleaning up the kitchen or that could be something in social justice that can be doing the work to create interesting art or whatever it is that that's for me is the one thing i always come back to mm -hmm. your messaging and, and simply put i i think most people hear that at a, at a surface level and go okay yes simple messages yeah that makes sense and yet again i worked in a corporate environment for 11 years where that I got yelled at one time for putting together a PowerPoint that didn't have enough bullets on the slides. <laughs> no, you need at least 13 bullets on every slide. I'm like, why? <laughs> Nobody understands this. Why are we doing this? What do you see is, what do you see as that kind of fundamental principle that makes you say that communication is simple, not easy, but simple. Mm -hmm. And that's what wins. What is the psychology behind that? So I'm glad you mentioned that example, because that's a really good one. That's one of the things that pushes back the other way. So I'll back up for a second. When we are communicating, if we strip away all the other titles and we're advertiser, politician, advocate, teacher, and we just say that there are senders and there are receivers, mm -hmm. voters, donors, customers, that's, those are the receivers. Employees. Senders and receivers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The when we're where we both wear both of these hats all the time in this conversation, we're going back and forth on that, right? Uh, when we're a receiver, we prefer things that are fluent. And so the word fluent is something that we know from everyday language, from you be fluent in English or Spanish or Mandarin, be fluent in cheese or beer or whatever other things are interesting to you, where, where you're fluent, things are flowing. That's the Latin root of the word is, is, is flowing. So we, we get that. But if you ask a cognitive scientist, 
about the word fluency. They're going to describe that as the, the suite of experiences that basically boils down to is something easy to take from out in the world, stick in your head and make sense of, right? The things that are easier to do that, that take like less mental cycles to do that, those are more fluent and those are almost universally associated with more all these positive things, more likely to trust it, to buy it, to like it. That's all associated with things being fluent. On the other hand, the opposite's also true. Less fluent, less likely to buy, to trust, to vote, to choose, to mm -hmm. like. So that's where we want to be as receivers. We want things that are fluent. But when you're a sender, we're faced with pressure from both internally and externally, like what you just talked about. So externally, you're facing the boss that wants more stuff. You're facing the societal presser to, to add more stuff so you can get the press release. So you can, your colleague wants their section on the website, all these different things. Internally, you're also facing what's known as an additive bias where you're, you're we're more likely to add than subtract when we're faced with a choice and, and asked to improve something. So there's this gap there, right? Like we, we want things one way, That's but mm -hmm. when we're in charge of saying things or sending things, we have a really hard time getting there. We're all the way on the other end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, it, it's, it, and if you're the sender, a lot of times you have a higher level of fluency with the material in many cases too. So what seems, oh yeah, this is easy. Everyone should understand this. And yet you're the world's expert on that topic. <laughs> So everybody in the audience is going, I have no idea what that man just said or what that woman just said. Do you see oh, that absolutely. effect too? That That's a huge piece of it. And so I, to bridge that gap, I've identified five design principles that help us get there. And one of them is, is empathy. And I talk about, I say, welcome the enlightened idiot. The enlightened <laughs> idiot is, the, is your audience. And this is not to be like mean or anything. Idiot means common man, right? When you go, but it's to get us out of our own bubbles. Because right. it's very easy if I'm sitting in my seat to be like, oh, everybody understands what like what a target market is and a demographic is. Everybody understands what I mean by KPIs and this and that. But in reality, most people don't, right? And when you talk to your audience, you'll be surprised by how many people are maybe unfamiliar with something you find very fundamental. Mm -hmm. uh, we are, there's a number of studies that that back this up too, where we are very bad at putting ourselves in other people's shoes in terms of what are their, what's their preferences? What are their motivations? What are their desires? We overestimate how much our opinions reflect the general population because there's two reasons for that. One is that we spend a lot of time with people like us and because that's just how society filters out. It's called homophily. We end up working with people who have the same general job, the same general education, same location. It's just, that's what happens. And number two is we spend the most amount of time with ourselves, right? And so we understand what we're talking about, but we don't always, we're not always able to translate that in a way that connects with other people. So the way you solve that is by talking to them. It's by testing. It's the most kind of no dub piece of the book, really, is that you have to go out and you have to talk to your audience. People don't like doing it because it's awkward and they, they don't, because maybe it costs money. Maybe they're going to get feedback they don't want. Right. But all of that is is so valuable that it's worth getting past that those those roadblocks. Mm -hmm. So empathy is one of the principles, and 
I believe there's five in the book. Go into a little bit more. Empathy's one. What else do you have as those pillars of the communication? Yeah, certainly. So the first one is beneficial. What does it matter to the receiver? And if you've ever done something in kind of sales or marketing, you understand this is the features versus benefits breakdown. The second one is focused. Are you trying to say one thing or are you trying to say multiple things at once? Is it three ideas in a trench coat or is it it one thing? Salient is the next one. Does your message stand out from the noise? Does it stand out from the crowd? Does it rise to your attention? Does it zig when people zag? Is there contrast? The fourth one is empathy, which I just mentioned. Are you speaking in the language that the audience understands? Are you meeting them where they are? And then lastly, it's minimal, which is have you cut out everything that isn't important and kept what is Is everything you need, but only what you need. And that last one, minimal, and you mentioned earlier that additive bias. And again, I was in a corporate environment. I saw this a lot, which was the, you know, you started with the simple presentation, had five bullet points. There's five things we want to cover. And by the time the committee meeting was over, it was a 55 slide deck, (laughs) each of which had 13 bullets on it kind of thing. And you're like, why do we have to have all of this? We tend to, I think, feel like it's if we just add more facts and more information, we'll convince them. They'll believe what, surely they'll see the obviousness of this message. Mm -hmm. How do we fight against that idea of adding to the message versus what you just said about pulling pieces out? Oh, yeah. So what you said reminds me of, there's a quote that's misattributed to Mark Twain, just like every quote is misattributed to Mark <laughs> yeah, Twain. Mark Twain said yeah. everything. I, yeah, I, it's like Mark Twain, Abraham Lincoln, Albert Einstein, or Winston Churchill. Like, if you, Just pick one at random and see who said it. Um, but it is, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write you a short one, right? I, it's a joke, but it, it is hard, right? It's hard to do that because the default, again, is for more. So, but minimal, you mentioned that. The idea of minimal here is not actually about the fewest number of words or sentences or paragraphs or sorry, or pages or slides. It's about the least amount of friction. Mm. As if you put the user experience designer hat on, that's what UX designers are doing every day is trying to eliminate friction, getting somebody from A to B. If there's more kind of bumps in the road, somebody says, screw it. I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm, I'm going to go pull off and do something else. I'm not, you don't need my credit card info, whatever it is. More friction, the less you get uh, at the end you result. Higher drop off, right? Yeah. Exactly. That's what we're really, really trying to optimize for when we talk about minimal. And sometimes that means more slides, right? So you, you mentioned having 13 bullets on a slide. Slides are free. Go yeah. ahead and add more. And if you have a 50 slide deck, but it's more digestible, there's less friction on there, that is simpler than having the two slide deck that has every single word in the universe crammed onto it. Yeah, that was actually one of the things I thought about is because I wanted the one, maybe two points per slide. Yeah, We get more than two, forget it. You've lost it. (laughs) At that point, there's no hope of them understanding it. And interestingly, by the way, I worked, I was an educator for years and then I worked in the industry as an assessment person. So literally, it's full of educators. And yet we wanted to complicate them. I'm like, I'm looking at people going, this, this like, is what, what we did to your students. <laughs> this is not what you did to your students, right? 
but it, it, I think, but like you said, I think there's a natural bias to it too, of it feels like the more complex message is more persuasive, even though the simpler, less friction, easier mm-hmm. to understand is a lot of times more persuasive. That uh, seems that, to be that gut feeling of that. Yeah, it, exactly. And that, that is, that is the default uh, assumption, bigger words. I'm a bigger brain. I'm more persuasive, right? Um, we often think that that complicating, adding more means that we cover more ground and we're we're smarter. Uh, there's an interesting study uh, about about this exact idea. So what these researchers did was they took a pile of grad school applications and they had some evaluators look at those uh, applications. They had another group of evaluators look at another stack of applications. Those essays in, the, in that second stack. What they did was they took them and they made them more complicated. They ran them through and they said, okay, every word we're going to go for something bigger out of this thesaurus. Mm-hmm. And then they compared the results. Uh, across the board, what happened was that the first group with the normal essays were rated as more intelligent and more likely to be admitted than the second group, which had the same essays, but with bigger words in them. They were rated as less intelligent and less likely to be admitted. Uh, and this happened when they looked at when they looked at high school students and when, when they translated works by famous philosophers. When they flipped it and they said we're going to take the regular essays and simplify them, the results still follow that same line, which is the bigger words will ultimately make you look dumb in a way that that you are trying very hard not to do. Mm-hmm. It's almost like we presume that person must be quote hiding something. <laughs> they're trying to get something over on us now oh yeah and on on that note it's almost like a status game too sometimes so there's another pit of research that i love this is like my favorite one of my favorite things i found as part of it because it's it sets like an interesting little way to let look at this so in the u.s there's like 150 ish uh international airports and these range from where i am in new york you have jfk international airport hundreds or thousands of flights on a daily basis on a weekly basis to Small airports, like my grandmother lived in Great Falls, Montana. I went to Great Falls International Airport, and there's a stuffed bear in the middle, and it's one hallway long. Um, So there's the entire spectrum between these big airports and these small airports. Uh, So what these researchers did is they looked at them, and they said, divided them into two groups, the big ones and the small ones. And they looked and they said, how did they talk about themselves? So the big airports... So they looked at their website, their marketing material, and they said, do you, do you call yourself JFK? Do you call yourself JFK International, JFK International Airport? And how often do you use the word international to describe yourself? And there's some status that comes of that, right? It feels sure. like you're elite, you're worldly, you've got international. The big airports called themselves international about like 28% of the time, 31, something like 30% of the time. The small airports called themselves international 70% of the time, right? So it did the exact opposite of it. They want to look big by putting on kind of the stage dressing of being this bigger, fancier, higher status entity. But what happened was it did the exact opposite. The bigger airports wouldn't refer to themselves with that type of more complicated language. So that makes me think of something. So I, I work with a lot of small business owners, many of whom are solopreneurs. And there's this messaging out there that, oh, never admit that you're a solopreneur. 
always put we in the messaging and talk about your team, even if your team is <laughs> kind of thing. And I've always gone the opposite way and said, you know, no, I'm fine telling people it's my, my business is me, myself, and I. And I occasionally mm-hmm. work with a VA or something like that, but that's it. It's it. That's what it is. And that's what you're getting. How do you see that kind of push pull between that small business owner trying to appear to be big when they're maybe not yet? Uh, the version of that that I see a lot is the CEO, right? Uh, when it's a one person business, two person business, and somebody has a chief executive officer, not even CEO, business card. whole thing <laughs> Of who? A CEO of who? I, 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 since I left my, since I sold my agency, I've been doing some consulting on my own. I just say I'm me or I say principal because that's like the little slightly bougier, but still completely honest way of saying it. Just principal of my thing. It's like the, the one person. That's it. The, the thing in this, I see a lot of anybody who started their first business, they do the CEO thing. I had a business card that said CEO before I changed it to partner on, um, on my old uh, uh, company. The version I think that's probably best is um, give yourself a job title. If you're in that, if you have to give yourself a job title, give yourself one that is something like creative director, something like that, where it's like, okay, it's still a senior thing. It's still, okay, I'm dealing with the creative director, but CEO doesn't mean anything in a small business. It, use, use the job title as something that kind of carries some meaning as part of it. Because then it turns into an asset, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ben, I've got a few questions that I like to ask all of my guests. But before I go there, is there anything else about the book that maybe we haven't touched on or that you think is really important for the listener to hear? Oh, I, there's lots of stuff, right? But <laughs> the one thing that I'll just wrap it up with on the book front is I mentioned the senders and the receivers before. The fundamental uh, mindset shift, if you forget everything else, is that the sender, just as if they were sending something for the mail, they're responsible for paying the postage, right? They're Mm -hmm. responsible for the literal and the figurative cost of communicating. And so it's their responsibility to make sure that they're heard. Receivers woke up today and they had a lot of things in their mind, and we cared about a lot of things our friends, family, our sports teams, or our work deadlines. We didn't have click on your ad on my to do list, right? We didn't have open your spam email. We didn't have even respond to your fundraising call. And so you have to respect that they have other things that they want to do. And it's your responsibility to fit into their lives more so than it is their responsibility to, to hear what you're having to say. So my brand is inspired stewardship, and I run things through that lens of of stewardship. But yet, speaking of messaging, I've discovered over the years that's a word that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I like just to ask people: when you hear the word stewardship, what does that word mean to you? It 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 is one of those words that does have. It's uh, kind of a mirror in some ways, right? You're, you try to see whatever you try to see yourself in it a little bit. It's multifaceted and, and it splits the light. For me, it's about exhibiting care in general. And I think that I mentioned some of the Takuna Lam stuff. What, one thing that that I see as part of the way which I exercise that is I teach and I've been doing that for a long time. I love it. It's only one night a week. It's not a it's not a huge commitment, but I'm going to do it. I, I keep telling the chair there. I'm going to do it until you kick me out because. It is so rewarding 
to see these students come and there's their senior undergraduate seniors so that this really interesting kind of pivotal moment in their lives and to be able to leave some sort of imprint on them and to maybe connect them with people that are going to help launch their careers or build their businesses that's the version for me that i think is very satisfying mm-hmm. so this is my favorite question that i love to ask all of my guests Imagine for a moment that I invented this magic machine. And with this machine, I could pluck you from where you are today and transport you into the future, maybe 150, maybe 250 years. And through the power of this machine, you were able to look back and see your entire life and see all of the ripples, all of the connections, and all of the impacts you've left behind. What impact do you hope you've left behind in the world? Uh, I hope it's very humbly. I just, I hope it's just small positive difference. I hope that being here left some left the world a tiny bit better than not being here. I'm I'm sitting up upstate in, in our house in the Catskills and I'm looking out at all these trees here. If these trees are still here in 150 years, I'll be very happy about that. Like something as small as that would make me overjoyed. So what's next on the roadmap? What's coming up the the rest of this year? Yeah, I'm excited to continue to to spread the word about this book and to be on more great shows like yours and to do some events and doing some consulting work on it. Uh, I've got a couple other projects in the hopper, which are exciting. And I'm also excited to to begin, I believe, what is my 11th year teaching. So to bring that whole full circle, uh, every single one of these is uh, these parts of my portfolio life is really just wonderful. And, and I'm very grateful to be able to have that experience. You can find out more about Ben over at bengutman.com. That's B-E-N-G-U-T-M-A-N-N. Of course, I'll have a link to that over in the show notes as well. Ben, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listener? I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Scott. It, it, this has been a ton of fun. If you go check out bengutman.com, you'll find obviously links to the book, but also there's a free chapter there. So if this sounded interesting, go grab it. And then if you like the book, go read it. Let me know. Send me an email. If something I do to help, if something I can do to, even if you just enjoyed it, I'd love to hear that. Thanks so much for listening to the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. As a subscriber and listener, we challenge you to not just sit back and passively listen, but act on what you've heard and find a way to live your calling. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor. Go over to inspiredstewardship.com slash iTunes rate, all one word, iTunes rate. It'll take you through how to leave a rating and review and how to make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so that you can get every episode as it comes out in your feed. Until next time, invest your time, your talent, and your treasures, develop your influence, and impact the world.